New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The opening line of Gail Story's book is, I never cared much for nature. This statement is followed by a memoir of the trek she and her husband Porter did of the Pacific Crest Trail that extends from Mexico to Canada. Before they left, one of their friends had said, have a wonderful trip and try not to kill each other. I'm glad to report they survived the ordeal. Gail writes, The trail sanded us down in the desert, scrubbed us with the rough mountain brush, washed us raw in the rapids. What inspired them to undertake such an adventure? What challenges did they face? What do they learn about themselves and each other? The answers to these and many other questions will be the focus of our dialogue today with Gail's story and her husband, Dr. Porter's story. Gail Story is an author and was formerly administrative director of the University of Houston Creative Writing Program. She is married to Porter Story, a medical doctor and a national leader in hospice and palliative medicine. Together they bicycled on their tandem from Houston to Maine and later from Houston to San Diego, and years later trekked the Pacific Crest Trail. Her books include the novels The Lord's Motel and God's Country Club. She is also the author of the memoir I Promise Not to Suffer, A Fool for Love Hikes the Pacific Crest Trail which is the winner of the Barbara Savage Award. She is now a hoop dancer and a comic performance artist. Porter's story has been a full-time hospice physician since 1983. He continues to do hospital and clinic consults in palliative care for the Colorado Permanente Medical Group. His extensive list of publications include the Primer of Palliative Care now in its fourth edition. In 2004, he was named the first executive vice president of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, where he continues his efforts to ensure that every severely ill patient has access to a physician skilled in hospice and palliative medicine. They live in Boulder, Colorado. Join us for the next hour as we explore life on a wilderness trail with our guest, 
Gail and Porter's story. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Gail Porter, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Justine. Thank you. Well, let's start off with how you two met. I just think it's a fun story, how you met and the chaplain that refused first to marry you. Yes. We met at a small Buddhist dinner party in Houston. At the time, Porter was the only hospice doctor at his hospice, and he um, was freshly divorced, and I had just come back from a writer's colony, and we at this small dinner party of just about six people, Porter was on the phone through the entire dinner coping with a patient with brain metastases and a freaked out wife and the patient had a gun. So Porter was dealing with this crisis on many levels and it was a hot August evening and uh, we were all in shorts and t-shirts and I was just listening to him deal with this crisis over the phone. I thought anybody who could deal with that could probably deal with me. (laughs) (laughs) And Porter, is that your recall? Yes, it it is. Thank you. And then when you decided to get married sometime after that, not not very long after that, actually, and... and, um, but you went to a chaplain, and Porter, what, what did he do for you? He, he gave you a test of some sort? He did. He used a psychological test, personality inventory, just to make sure we knew who we were thinking about marrying. And he was really concerned because we both scored off the charts in perfectionism, and he was afraid that uh, that was going to be a pretty lethal combination. But it turned out quite well. We've been together going on twenty-five, twenty-sixth year, and seemed to have uh, worked things out well. Well, that's great. But he refused to marry you, didn't he? And you had to find another minister to actually perform. I mentioned in my. Uh, intro that you did this bike trip. Uh, that's quite a trip. I mean, from Houston to Maine. Tell us about that. Well, Porter is a longtime bicyclist, and I had done some bicycling, but nothing on the scale that he had. But since I had sagged him, that's the term for going along in front and behind um, when he was doing his solo bike trip to the foot of the Appalachian Trail, I thought, this is no fun. Now, uh, when you say sag him, that means you, you're, you're in a car, a car or something, right, you're in a right, car yeah. kind of following right. him. And this was before cell phones were in much use, so we I could hardly ever figure out where he was and I would check us into the motel and it would turn out to be some horrible place and I would go have to go out and find him. So it was so stressful that I decided next time he goes on one of these long bike trips, I'm going to go with him. So um, we got a tandem and we, that's when we did our first long distance tandem trip from Houston to Camden, Maine, near the northern end of the Appalachian Trail. I, I know that uh, you, you wrote in your book, and you might concur with this, Porter, that she was, Gail, you were willing to go pedal 90 miles to get to a motel rather than camp. Yes. 
Yes, I had never camped in my life. I was petrified of it. I grew up in a Cambridge, Massachusetts housing project. We, I, I, had, I wasn't the camping type, and uh, so I, I was afraid of dirt and bugs, and it was not my thing. So I was quite willing to pedal through up to 100 miles a day, really, to, get, to keep from camping out, outside. <laughs> <laughs> Porter is rolling his eyes. So, so how was that for you? Now, now you're you're married. You're you're pedaling along and no camping. Well, I was really concerned that we were going to have to camp because of mechanical problems. This was a totally self-supported trip, so carried sleeping bag and stove and tarp and food just in case all the way uh, to Maine and. You know, we had a wonderful time. When you're heading east, their civilization is dense enough where you can usually get to some place in a day. Heading west from Houston, not so much. No, it's, it can be very sparse. So what, what was that like? I mean, and you're going through some, it could be very, very hot, too. Yeah, we, we were a little bit smarter on the second trip. We started earlier in the spring, so it was April, May instead of June, July. Sort of much to my amazement, Gail really took to the dry country. She loves the, the dry lands because they're so varied and so different and so sparse and um, soulful that just had a wonderful time yeah. on that trip enough to be willing to actually camp when there was no other choice. You actually did that, Gail. <laughs> Three times. Three times. Yeah. She remembers yeah. every time. Yeah, and, and I think that was the only reason we had to, because heading west, the winds, you, you just don't realize till you're way out there this is a very windy country. <laughs> and you're in headwinds. They're We're called headwinds. headwinds. They're coming yes. at you. Yes. They're not behind your no, back. No, and we got blown off the road with our, on our tandem several times. I mean, literally, a, a crosswind just knocked us over. And, it, it, you know, it, it the, could be scary. Yeah. So some, scary. Um, on three of those occasions, we just couldn't get far enough. Right. We had to camp. Right. So then you decided... Well, Porter, you it was a trek trek that you had wanted to do, uh, the Pacific Crest Trail, which is from Mexico to Canada, which is how long? Two thousand six hundred and sixty-three miles. So you wanted to do this, and you you proposed this to Gail. We, I, I suppose that you thought that you would just do it by yourself in the very beginning, huh? I, yes, that's what I thought. Um, I, you know, I love the outdoors and I really wanted to share it with Gail, but she's not much of an outdoor enthusiast, so sort of assumed I would be doing it myself. And Gail, you, you didn't want to be left behind or what, what? I really, I had to ask myself a big question. Did I want to be at home in our cozy bed by myself, or did I want to be out there with Porter to assure myself that he was still on the planet? Because otherwise we'd be out of communication for long periods of time. Since I had no clue what the Pacific Crest Trail was about, I just 
I, I didn't know how much to be, what to be afraid of exactly, but I, I knew it would be scary if he were out there. But the main thing is I just love him so much. I wanted to be with him, and I really wanted to find out what it was about the wilderness that drew him. It was such a part of his soul. And all, you know, all of that's well and good. But one night over a killer Malbec, when Porter said, let's hike the Pacific Crest Trail, and I had thought, no, no way. But I just knocked back the rest of my glass and said, why the heck not? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to read something uh, from, from your book that I've pointed out. And it was in my introduction, I mentioned something about a friend who said, I'm, it's going to have a great trip, but don't kill each other. Can can you do that? Reading? Sure, yeah. Um, have a wonderful trip and try not to kill each other. One of my friends had said before we left for the PCT, what a long way we had come since then through differences in our skills and temperaments into this deepening trust. Even as my body wore down, my heart opened like the snow plant bursting red through the forest floor. Because of the mountains, the blue space of sky, the softness of green on gray rocks splashed with lichens, or back in the desert when colors took the place of thoughts, blue-purple lupins, creamy white yucca, prickly poppy yellow. Now, pearlescent cool air soothed my forehead and my mind settled down. <laughs> Such a beautiful piece of writing. Uh, I'm here with Gail and Porter Story. She's the author of I Promise Not to Suffer, A Fool for Love Hikes the Pacific Crest Trail. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Gail Story and her husband, Dr. Porter Story, and we're talking about hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And if you want to know more about her work and their work uh, and the book, I Promise Not to Suffer, you can go to the website gailstory.com, and it's G-A-I-L Story, S-T-O-R-E-Y, Com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. So we're talking about the hike and how you're different in your temperament, you're different in your skills, 
Um, how is it when you're walking together, one has one pace, another has another, one is more talkative and one is not so talkative? <laughs> uh, so how was that? It was a tremendous challenge. It was on every level, really, Justine. On the physical level, Porter was such so much faster than I was that I, I at first felt that I was pretty much running along behind him to catch up most of the time. and uh, But he was very kind and very thoughtful, and uh, he just kept carrying more of the weight so that I could step up the pace. And on the Pacific Crest Trail, there's a, a very tight weather window. You have to start about er, earlier mid-April in order to be just past the the late storms, the late winter storms, and you have to finish by pretty much by the end of September before the really bad weather at the northern end, Canada, Washington, oh, that's Canada. That's what, like that's six, six months. months, right? Yeah, and so that's a, a lot of miles to cover in that amount of time, but especially where you're not just flat; it's up and down mountains constantly across the one edge of the Mojave and. Um, up and down the snow of the high Sierra. So it, you really have to keep up a pace of a, about 20 miles a day. That's a lot. That, that's, that's big. And, and then, Porter, you, you had early on, you hurt your ankle or hurt your foot. So you're carrying extra weight and you're limping along yourself. How, how is that? Not so good. Not so good. <laughs> yeah, and and wind and rain and oh man, all of it you you describe in detail. But I I want to uh, talk a little bit about there a couple of things that just really struck me. At some point, of course, you come through the long desert, and part of the hardship of Walking a trail is water, and I know that that was a big concern of yours, Porter, that, that really to have enough water and carrying enough water. So can you say something about how important that is? Oh, my gosh. Well, it's, um, you know, you die if you don't get enough um, water to stay hydrated, and we, and yet water is the heaviest thing in your pack. And weight on your back is really important because that determines how far and fast you go. And Southern California is very dry, particularly after all the fires. And really, this hike would not be possible were it not for the kindness of strangers. Um, people who care about hikers leave large volumes of water in, uh, right where the trail crosses almost every road. And it's there for the month when uh, hikers are starting at the Mexican border and heading north. Um, That's just amazing. Yes. You call them trail angels. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you come across these stashes of water bottles. It's an amazing thing. People yeah. really, really are thinking about you and, and, and urging you on. And People we've never met, people we've never been able to say thank you to. Um, rescued us many times. Wow, that's amazing. There was a point, I, I think, now you've been on the trail for a while, and there's a point that you're looking down one evening and you see all these twinkling lights and you're seeing, um, is it Palm Desert Palm, or Palm, Palm, Springs. Palm Springs? 
I just found that that must have been kind of amazing to be out in the wilderness and suddenly you look down and there's all this civilization, so to speak, and it must have been disorienting in some way. Can you say something about that? It was. It was strange because the lights kind of glinted on. So here we are on this ridgetop, and above us is this incredibly enormous sky filled with stars. And it almost looks like there's another whole layer of stars below us blinking on one by one. And I said to Porter, what the heck is that? And he said, that's Palm Springs. And I said, what is Palm Springs doing there? (laughs) (laughs) And I, I was at a turning point. Of course, I was constantly on the verge of thinking I should go home. And, well, or even more, Porter was constantly on the verge of thinking he should stamp our zip code on my forehead and drop me off at the next post office. <laughs> so I was, had, was thinking, should I go down to Palm Springs and wait there until um, Porter was ready to come home? Because I knew it was, a, you know, it was a really fun place. We had been there once on a, for a palliative care conference, and Liberace's home is there, and it's kind of cool. And, um, but then I thought I wouldn't be anywhere but where I was with mm-hmm. Porter on the trail in spite of the hardship because, Justine, it was so gorgeous on so many levels, the emotional level, the spiritual level. It, it was, I wouldn't have left it at that yeah. point. There was another point, and I'm, I'm just kind of dipping into a few little highlights. I mean, I encourage our readers, I mean, you, I mean our listeners, to, to pick up the book because there's so much in there. But So I'm just kind of dipping into a few things. But at some point, Gail, you were like really disgruntled and, and mad at Porter for something, and I don't remember what it was, and you just stormed off ahead of him and came around the corner and met someone, something, uh, something. Yes. Say that. Yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, Porter and I had been having this disagreement because <laughs> I was so frustrated with my own slow pace that I just took off running with my pack on my back and turned a, a switch back, and there was a mountain lion. And the mountain lion stopped and looked at me. I looked at the mountain lion, and there, there was no time. The, the mountain lion just gazed at me. I gazed at, there was this incredible connection between us. I had no fear. The mountain lion didn't seem afraid or hostile toward me. And the mountains fell away. It was one of the deepest experiences I've ever had of, of what stillness and silence is, that the, the depths of our true nature. And then the mountain lion didn't so much drop her gaze as dissolve something between us so that she could just very gracefully turn around in the trail and go back the way she had come. And there, there had been attacks. Uh, you had heard different mm-hmm. stories of attacks. I mean, it wasn't just like this was a normal encounter, so to speak. Um, this was a very mystical encounter. Yes, very. And Porter, I think you said to Gail that, that it was something very special that she showed herself to Gail. Oh, yeah. Mountain lions are... Um, have much better vision and smell and hearing than we do. And um, pretty much if, if you see a mountain lion, it's because they have 
chosen to reveal themselves in some way. Right, right. So it was a blessing. And it was such a blessing. And it, and it, and it stayed with you. Maybe yes. even right now as you're telling the story, I yes. can feel yes. that it's still so vibrant within you. Yeah, it, it, was, it put me in touch with a fundamental awareness the awareness and the through the mountain lion conveyed to me our interconnected awareness and so that has never left me and even at my most difficult points after that i just felt the presence of the mountain lion which is really the presence of our true nature that we all share so you were carrying that presence with you then for it really supported you yes in, in many yeah, ways and still to, does to keep going oh that's that's so beautiful there was uh, another encounter you had with an an animal not not a wild animal at least when it started to approach you you thought it was a wild animal but uh, this is Odin so say something about Odin. Well, it was it, it was dusk, and uh, we were pushing on to try to get to a flat spot, and all of a sudden, this dark-colored animal starts bounding towards us on the trail, and Gail shrieked, and uh, I pulled out the camera, but it turned out <laughs> that, you know, in the dusk, you can't tell how far away something is, and so... It turned out not to be as big as a bear, but it was closer than a bear. And it was gorgeous black lab that um, came up and uh, became our friend for the next couple of days. And um, quite, a, quite an interesting turn of events for us. Well, it was so sweet, this dog. This dog then was your companion. And what, what's the story? What, 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 who, who was this dog and how, what happened? This dog, apparently, we learned later, had followed a horse down from a compound high above, um, high above Bear, Bear Mountain, was that? and it belonged to a Los Angeles movie studio that kept this compound full of animals that acted in movies. And actually, that's Odin's name is the only name I changed because I didn't want to get um, this movie star dog in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we later, I won't say, well, I did, we did find out what studio it belonged to and some movies it had been in. But it was so smart. It was such a smart dog. And it was freezing cold that night in, in, the, in the single digits. And the dog um, that we I now call Odin slept at our heads, and I, I just come snuggle between us, Odin, just mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. to stay warmer. But and, but every time there was a sound in the in the woods, as we were really deep woods, he, uh, he'd run to the clearing and perk up his ears to see if he was if somebody was coming for him that he belonged to, and that didn't happen. So um, and we shared. We were on our last night before Big Bear, so we had very little food left. But we shared it with uh, Odin, and we did reach his owner uh, at a Los Angeles movie studio and who sent the caretaker up. The caretaker couldn't find us, of course. So the next morning we had to bushwhack up to Highway 38 and the caretaker had been driving up and down for hours and um, she came across us by the guardrail. The dog got in. 
she was so freaked out, she didn't say anything. But Odin turned around and, you know, kind of wagged and smiled his doggy stanks. And, <laughs> and then, we, then we had a hot walk, road walk, because there was no way we could bushwhack down. We would never find the trail that deep in the woods. So. Right. We, so we, but we made it into Big Bear from there. That's amazing. That's amazing that this and it, it got returned and it was so trusting of you all. It just yeah. it kind of taught you something about trust and yeah. about being in the moment. I was all okay. I'm lost, but here's this couple and hey, they got food. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it was great. I'm here with Porter and Gail Story. She's the author of I Promise Not to Suffer, A Fool for Love Hikes the Pacific Crest Trail. So she wrote the memoir, their trek together. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Gail's story and her husband, Dr. Porter's story. And we're talking about hiking and trekking. I mean, more than hiking. I mean, this is like hundreds of miles of hiking in wilderness. And uh, you, you talk about how emotions, both of you maybe can share about how emotions are much more on the surface. One would think, oh, we're out in the wilderness, and then we can just really relax and get out of our, what we call our monkey mind. But um, that may not be the case. Uh, Can you both say something about that, please? Yes. I think uh, that what happens when you're out in the wilderness, the first thing that starts to both become stronger and break down is the physical body, and then the when the physical body is somewhat worn away, the or I, let me put it this way: our identification with the physical body, where it where at once much more present to what's going on in terms of the body sensations, but then your emotions, the the layer. I know it's it's overly conceptual to think of it. It's not really in layers like this in a linear sense, but the emotional body becomes much more raw and rises to the surface. And things you haven't thought about in years or thought you had resolved all of a sudden start to kind of seep up to the surface. And it's true, the monkey mind goes wild. It's really not as serene at first as you would think. You have to come to a different kind of stillness and peace, but that, that's, the tr- that's the transformation, that's the journey. So the emotions um, become, can be very, feel very vulnerable, at least in, on, my, from, on my part. I felt, I, I cried a lot, I laughed a lot, I, um, uh, I tend to be a pretty emotional person anyway, and, but I felt there was kind of a deconstructing going on, a deconstruction of the physical self, the emotional self, underneath that, the psychological self, and ultimately, even a deconstruction of the spiritual self, or what I had thought of as the spiritual self. 
And all of this while your 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 body is going yes. through extreme pain. Yes, I mean, yes. And and uh, and for you, Porter, uh, it seems like you were not only handling your own stuff, but you were also caring for her, or at least feeling like you needed to care for Gail. So say something about that about your. Well, I. It's very challenging to be um, out, uh, to live in the woods uh, for half a year, which essentially is what this is. Um, and I, re- you know, Gail had a really tough time, and I care deeply for her. And it was really hard to see her having so much trouble. And if we didn't keep up a pretty rapid pace, we were going to be in really deep snow before we got finished on this trail. So there was a, that was the tension going on. And, um, but Gail's right. The psychological problems more than physical problems end most hikers hikes. I mean, they say roughly 3000 people start the Appalachian trail every year and 300 finish roughly 300 people start the Pacific Crest Trail and 30 finish, and then about 30 start the Continental Divide and about three finish, um, give or take. The reason most of those folks don't finish really isn't so much that their feet hurt so bad. It's the monkey mind, as you call it, that um, drives us all uh, a little crazy. Right. And Gail, now, you don't carry a lot of body weight anyway, and you were starting to, even though you all were trying to pack away 6,000 to 8,000 calories a day. Yes. I mean, that's a lot of food. But but with that kind of effort, you need to do that. And you were losing, losing, losing weight. So you're, you're what, five foot seven? Yes. And you started off weighing, what? 125. 125 pounds, and now you've lost, what, 23 pounds? Yes, yes. I, I was down to about 102 by so, the, yeah, the, after the High Sierra. I mean, you must have looked like a skeleton. I looked like a skeleton. It must have been scary for you. <laughs> it was scary for me. Watch that. I mean, here, you're a medical doctor. You you know, you know that's got to be really scary. Uh, and so... There came a moment, and um, before I talk about that moment, I, I'm going to say something else that was also weighing on you, especially, Gail. Your mother, at the same time as this trek is happening, your mother, her breast cancer reoccurred, and so you were also concerned about her. Can you say something about yes, that? Yes, I was very concerned about her, but my mother and I have have had a very long and complicated relationship. I grew up in the, I, I came into my young adulthood in the 60s. And you know what, the, the, I don't know, you're probably too young to know what the 60s were like. <laughs> no, 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 I was right in the middle of it. So. But it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And after many years of Catholic education, uh, here I am thrown into the, the West Village and then the Old Town in Chicago. And that, there's a lot about my checkered past and in, in, interwoven in, in the book. But my mother and I were, had been estranged since I was about um, 21. I mean, not estranged in the sense 
months that we didn't speak to each other. But she just didn't understand my attempts at individuation or who I was trying to become. You weren't following the the, the Catholic no. girl uh, path, were no. you? The good and, Catholic girl. And it wasn't even that that was problematic to my mother because I, although I had gone to Catholic schools, my family wasn't particularly religious. But my, I grew up in a home where there was um, domestic violence. And so my mother really wanted me to have a good relationship with a fine man. And I was running around with, you know, the people we did in the 60s, the, you know, people who did a lot of drugs. It was it, wild, right. pretty wild musicians. And there was sexual freedom at that sexual time. Sexual freedom, right. And right. I was very much into that. Before AIDS. Right, had, right before AIDS, yeah, right. right. And uh, pretty much everything that can happen that could happen to a young woman than happened to me. And a lot of the, anyway, we won't go there right now. But um, the, so my mother didn't understand why I had this drive for experience. And I was making a lot of, a lot of different mistakes from the mistakes that she had made. And so um, I, but I, I, so she really didn't want me to be with her when she, when her breast cancer returned. She wanted my brother, my younger brother Mark, who has, with whom she has a, had a very close relationship, and uh, so he was there. And I'm very close to him because he's seven years younger than I, and I pretty much uh, helped raise him um, after my my mother left my father and we moved to a housing project. So. Um, so I felt that she was in good hands with my younger brother, Mark, and she, we had very, whenever we got to a trail town, Porter and I, I would call her and just check in with her, but very limited communication. Those ca- calls were very short. How yeah. are you? I'm right. fine. Yeah. You know, it, very, very short. You know, right. Not, and, not and, a- and by temperament, she's ve- she was very different. I'm I'm a very you know I'm a kind of a gabby person. Right. She was very Boston Bostonian reserved. You you mentioned that just reminds me in the book. Uh, there were there was another couple on the trail that sometimes you would kind of cross paths yes. in 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 your walking. I mean, there's a whole group of people who are walking alone together so yes. to speak uh so that you meet up at different places and you get to know each other but then you separate and you go out but i i noticed you you were talking now about how you would have these talking or chatting emergencies <laughs> with with sheila and when you would meet up with Sheila and Tom, because Porter was not so chatty on the trail. So. <laughs> right, right, right. So your mother was not chatty. Porter's not chatty. But right. Sheila, Sheila gave you yes. your hit. Yes, yeah. Tom and Sheila were another couple. Tom was my age. He was um, in his 50s, as I was. And Sheila was quite a bit younger. And, you know, they live in Santa Rosa. <laughs> oh, they're, yeah. they're close by. Yeah, and um, so we have stayed very close friends with them. But they were kind of the people, since most of the people on the Pacific Crest Trail are 20-somethings, and most of them, at least the year that we hiked, were met young men. And um, so to have and an you older... All right, an are older, in your 50s. 50s. Mid-50s, yeah. early 50s, yes. Yeah, uh-huh. with, yeah, with yeah. A, with a, to have another couple our age, close to our age, out there. And most of the people on the trail weren't married either. There were a lot of footloose and fancy-free kids who were just out of college or out of the service or... So, so we we really valued their 
friendship. When, right. when, but we didn't run into them all that often because right. you're, you know, everybody's so spread out. We didn't run into them. Anybody really? Right, right, exactly. So um, there was there was another time too that I was struck with, where you ended up, uh, oddly enough, you ended up like on a, as you're crossing a road or something. You ended up at at a McDonald's, and you had I don't know a milkshake or a Big Mac or whatever it was. I mean what. I mean, my God, I mean, after all this, what is it, trail food, you know, that's all dehydrated and everything. Oh, my God, that must have been something. But what was significant was how, I just imagine, then leaving McDonald's, and then you describe it as going down into a rabbit hole, and you go into back on the trail, which ends up at that point uh, in a tunnel underneath some railroad tracks where the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe, <laughs> yes. you, know, you know, train is rumbling overhead and you go into this deep tunnel and you're back on the trail. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's got to be, uh, I don't know, a disorientation. I mean, to be up McDonald's and then suddenly you're back on the trail. You got to comment on that. Yeah. Well, in um, civilization where uh, lots of people are packed together, we watch our wallets and, you know, we're uh, wary of what uh, other people might do. On the trail, there's such a caring community, you would give the shirt off your back to the next person who comes along if he didn't have a shirt. I mean, we met a woman in the High Sierra who had sat down for lunch and a bear had come up and put his nose between her and her bear canister and took all of her food in the middle of the woods and she never saw any of it again. She um, ended up gaining weight that week from all the food that the other hikers were happy to supply her with. That's just the ethic yeah. out there. Yeah. So it's, um, it really does feel different to be, you know, once you've adapted to the wilderness and the culture there, right. you know, it's, it, it's a lovely way to live. I'm here with Dr. Porter's story and Gail's story, and we're talking about hiking the Wilderness Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada. And um, if you want to know more about their work, you can go to the website gailstory.com, G-A-I-L-S-T-O-R-E-Y, gailstory.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Gail Story and her husband, Dr. Porter Story. And we're talking about this trek from Mexico to Canada uh, on the Pacific Crest Trail. Gail, you lost so much weight, and, and you came to a point where your body just couldn't do it anymore. You're like 900 miles up the path. Uh, now you're in the Sierra. Now you're in the high mountains, and there's snowpack, and Porter's having to, to you're falling down. <laughs> you're not a good snow walker, huh? <laughs> that was hard. <laughs> you would fall over a lot. Yeah. But the wind could almost blow you over. Right, at that you know. point, yes. And so you made a decision. It was a very hard decision. Maybe you both made it together, but say something about the decision you made. I made the decision. You know, I don't even think I made the decision. I think. The decision was made for me in the same way the decision to marry Porter was made for me. There's, I'm sure you have experience of this too. You have an, we each have an inner knowing at our very depths. And I had made it this far much further along the Pacific Crest Trail than I ever imagined. And all of the different layers were breaking down, the physical, the emotional, the psychological, even the spiritual at that point. And I didn't know whether to try to keep going because I had been, had been at so many other crisis points. I didn't know if this was just another one that I would come through. So I didn't know what to do. And Porter said, what does your inner knowing tell you? And it just came out, my inner knowing says to come off the trail. We were both shocked. And we only... So I, I went to the, the general store at this little outpost, and they said, well, we have somebody leaving in an hour if you want to get a ride with them to the airport. I said, an hour? So Porter and I, who had been together 24-7 for months, inseparable, all of a sudden had to divide up our gear and figure out what Porter would need to go on alone and what I should take home and what I should go home and send him something else to replace. And it was one of the, it was, it was like deciding child custody to decide what, which piece of, because we're very attached to our pieces of gear. I mean, you even gave them yeah, names. Yeah, we gave them names. Yeah, Porter, <laughs> Porter makes most of our ultralight gear because we have to go lighter than some ultralighters because of our age. And so, um, but, but I, I left and it took me two days to get home because of missed flight connections, long lines at LAX, and I was, and I just felt so disoriented. But at the same time, I, in the busyness and the frenzy of the airport, I just felt that same stillness that I had felt with the mountain lion. Mm. So I knew I had made the right decision. And Porter can talk about well. What. So you in, you're in Vermilion Valley, and and now you're splitting up. But that didn't mean that you didn't continue, Gail, to participate because Porter, you went on. You actually got to the to Canada. You actually signed in and signed in both your names because Gail really was then a support. Can describe how that all unfolded? Well, it, it, it was a terribly wrenching, you know, decision. Um, and I was very distressed for a while. But at the same time, 
there was the physical reality. She was getting so thin, she couldn't walk uphill. It was, it was, it was very different walking on alone, and um, we stayed in as close a touch as we possibly could, and I certainly wouldn't have made it to Canada had it not been for her continuing support. So I really felt her presence all the time, and uh, she did come out and hike pieces of it with me along the way. So um, we were uh, together in spirit when not in body, and really owe my success to her continued hard work. And there's something about, it, describe it, resupplying, what, what exactly, I mean, that's a logistical Nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say nightmare. I mean, you 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 know it better. Uh, so, what is you you kept him resupplied and describe that? When I went back to Houston, where we lived at the time, uh, I re- I took over the shipping of the resupply boxes. But since I had been out there myself with Porter, I was in a much better position to to figure out what he would need for the uh, next particular stretch. So I would pack up the next resupply box, send it with whatever he needed. And um, Porter's an outdoor gourmet cook, so he had put together like truffle oil and all kinds of things. And so, but I was able to make that even nicer by, I put little, um, little footprint decals and love notes on, on the truffle oil and whatever. So it got even a little more romantic. And, uh, so I, I feel I did a pretty good job as a supply, resupply person. So then you would, you would also fly out, too, and meet him at different points along right. the way. So right. describe one of those points. The, um, one of my favorite sections was flying out to meet him in Oregon. And we, um, I, would, I rented a car, and I would drive to a trailhead, hike in by myself, which was the first time in my life I had ever hiked, in, hiked by myself, which was kind of scary for me. And I'd hike in, I'd meet him at some point. We'd hike out together. So he was still on the on the route heading north. That's just amazing to meet up in wilderness. It's not like you've got a cell phone. <laughs> yeah. It's not I like, all right, we're going to meet at the corner of Vine and, <laughs> and Ocean, you know. It, it's like, oh, my gosh. And you got to know, oh, do I take this fork or this fork? And and will he be there? Is he ahead of me? Is he behind me? Have I missed him? Oh my goodness! Yes, it was. It was. It was very dicey. I would meet other north um, bounders coming my direction when I was heading south to meet Porter, and they say, "We heard you were off the trail," and I would just say, "I'm just back from my conjugal rights." <laughs> <laughs> and so, unfortunately, I, I, I very, I did get close to getting lost, but I had to develop more of my own skills hiking by myself where I had been able to depend on Porter before. So um, to make up for some of the time he had lost by me being slower for a first go-round, he he didn't want to miss a single bit of the trail, so then I would take him back to that trailhood the next morning. One of the fun stories was, uh, Porter, you... Quit your job. You 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 were not you were not employed at the point that you started this trek, but at some point, like around Oregon, you started getting all these job offers. And but you're on the trail, and you have to do resume. You have to do all all this. I mean, can well, you describe that? Gail, 
made that all possible. My, my monkey brain, of course, is saying, um, how are we going to learn earn a living after this is, you know, uh, done? And Gail is scanning my mail and we're talking and uh, the job of my dreams comes up. And um, I actually wrote my employment essay on the white uh, piece of Tyvek ground cloth that I was sleeping on and tore that little piece off and mailed it home. And she types it up. And I ended up interviewing for the job in a phone booth after, when I hadn't had a bath for a week. I'm glad I they couldn't smell me over the phone. But um, it was... Um, uh, quite wonderful to find out uh, by the end of the trail that I actually had a job and to be able to start working soon after I got home. That's wonderful. I love that story. Gail, I would love for you to read that something that you wrote about a phone call when you all were back in Houston. So could you could you read this? Years ago, an older lady had called our home in Houston. I couldn't make head nor tail out of what she said, except that she wanted to talk with Dr. Story. I handed the phone to Porter. What was that about, I asked when he got off the phone. She wanted to tell someone who'd listen, he said, that she was still alive. I was still alive, but oddly more so than before. Mist rose from the lake and I saw through it as if through myself, through light, air, flowers, trees. Beetles and ants scurried in the dirt and joined us in our silence. It seems so long ago I believed they were out to get me, that dirt would kill me, that heat, cold, water, and ice were problems to be overcome. I'd come so far these nearly 900 miles. Oh, it's just lovely, just lovely. So it, it, you really take us on this trip with you. And Porter, you did... Finally, with some going through some major storms, I mean, life-threatening storms there at the end, just before you entered Canada. And, you know, we, we only have like about 30 seconds for you to say something about arriving in Canada. It was uh, amazing. I had wanted so much to get there for so long, and I got to the monument uh, sort of all by myself and uh, propped the camera up on a rock to take a picture of myself next to the monument. But it was really jarring to reenter civilization again, and there was parts of me that longed to be back on the trail. So it was both a victory and a uh, turning back to the civilized life that really put things in perspective for me. Thank you so much, the two of you, for sharing this journey with us. Thank you, Justine. It's just lovely to be here with Thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I've been speaking with Gail Story and Dr. Porter Story. She's the author of I Promise Not to Suffer, A Fool for Love Hikes the Pacific Crest Trail, which documents their, their trek. And if you'd like to know more about their work, you can go to the website gailstory.com, G-A-I-L story, S-T-O-R-E-Y.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3483. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.